Hello and welcome to the Village Church Podcast. My name is John and we are glad to have you join us. We work to deliver our most recent preaching content to you as soon as possible, so let's get into God's Word together. Exodus chapter 15, if you have a Bible with you today. Exodus 15, the God and Father of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is one who delivers, redeems, and dwells with his people. I'm keeping that in front of us. God delivers, God redeems, and dwells with his people. He does not just deliver and leave you. He delivers you and redeems you unto himself and then dwells with you, with us. The Israelites whom God has delivered and redeemed out of Egypt knew this firsthand. Moses wrote the whole thing down. This happened to them that we may learn from them. Delivered from bondage to Pharaoh and Egypt, a yoke they could not throw off of themselves, Israel watched the mighty hand of God crush their enemy and bring them safely across the Red Sea. We examined last week this song that they sang, this praise and what it was filled with as they stood on the shore of the Red Sea and the dead bodies of their enemy drifted ashore, God having crushed the enemy of his people, his own enemy crushed them under the waves of the Red Sea. They stood and they saw this. They burst forth into praise. Before we read this morning's scripture, it is a scientific fact, science not being my strong suit at all. It is a scientific fact that the human body can survive for three days without water. After three days, the likelihood of death begins to increase rapidly. Best known science says, I have not tested it, but I'm sure some extreme case exists somewhere, that when the human body hits day five with no water, you're dead. Exodus chapter 15, verse 22. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea. And they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord. And the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule. And there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes... I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. They came to Elam, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. Father, I pray in this time, please help me. I recognize my inability to communicate anything of your word if your spirit is not involved. And so, Father, please Speak through me and to me, to your people this morning. 
Father, I pray that through the preaching and examining of your word, you would call sinners to repentance and salvation. Father, call your people to repentance. I pray, Father, that as we examine your word, we would be called to the holiness with which you have called us to, that we would be holy as you are holy. And I pray, Father, that as we examine your word, Christ the Savior would be exalted here, now, in our lives, this day as we go forward, and for the rest of our number of days. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There he tested them. I've called the sermon today right out of verse 25, and there he tested them. End of verse 25. I hope, it's my goal, that walking away from our time together today, we will have a tighter grip on this truth. God tests his people. I do not want to be the pastor of a church where God's people never expect the testing of God. God tests his people. We just heard moments ago in Romans 5, suffering produces endurance. James says, the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Romans teaches that enduring faith through trial produces hope in God that does not disappoint. And James teaches that steadfast faith through trial is perfecting us. Maybe you have trial or difficulty in your life that you can recognize right now. Saints of God, beloved children of the Lord, the testing and trial of your faith is perfecting you. It's a good thing. So we come to Exodus chapter 15 and verse 22. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea. It's important to note, I wrote this down to dwell on for a moment. In this life, we do not live in a place of permanent victory. We come to moments of victory throughout the course of our life that are great and awesome. Israel has just watched the Lord crush Egypt on the shore of the Red Sea. He did a real work in front of their very eyes, and it is awesome. But we do not live in a place of permanent victory and triumph in this life. That is a promise, not a reality. God delivered Israel from Egypt and Pharaoh. He redeemed them unto himself through the blood of the Passover lamb. He gave them favor in the sight of their enemies. We read about they sent them out with silver, with gold, with new clothing. They marched out triumphantly. They marched out defiantly to the Red Sea where they were trapped and then saved again across on dry land. The water divided. They saw their enemy destroyed. The Bible says to never see again. This has become one stop of many in the historical narrative life of God's people. The victory that God achieved for Israel on the shore of the Red Sea was not a permanent place of victory. It was a moment of victory in their life. Now, there are those who will open God's word and who will say, God only has victory for his people. And there are those who will open God's word and say, God only has victory for his people in eternity. I would argue with both of those points of view. I would first ask questions of them, but I would argue both of those points of view from this standpoint. God promises victory here. It's just not lasting. 
It's fleeting and we move on in our life. We enjoy victory and triumph and we move on. How many of us, the day of our salvation, we experienced such joy realizing what had happened to our sin, that our sin is put away and we are free. We experienced joy. And how quickly did that joy diminish in the face of life's realities? A moment of victory walked into the need for enduring faith. We will see victory in this life, but it's not everlasting. On the other hand, we will experience victory in eternity that will be everlasting, but it's both and, not one or the other. And so I would contend with both of those points. We will see victory and triumph of God in this life. Recognize that we will achieve none of it. We will do nothing to see that victory. God will do it all, and we will rejoice when he does. Our Lord Jesus in John 16, verse 33 said this, Take heart, I have overcome the world. In 1 John 2, 13 and 14, the Bible teaches us that through faith in Jesus Christ, through the forgiveness of sin, through our knowing God, we have, John writes, overcome the evil one. That's victory in this life. Overcome the evil one. The Apostle Paul in Romans 8, verse 2, The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free. Not will, not may, not one day going to be, even though that is true, has set you free. We will see victory and triumph of God in this life. However, even a quick glance through God's word teaches God's people that we will, no doubt, experience hardship in this life. Before saying that he has overcome the world in John 16, 33, Christ says, in this world, you will have trouble. Words of Christ. Like, oh, I don't know, God wants us to experience just all good things. He only has fluffy clouds and fairy dust for his people. Not according to the word of God in flesh, the Lord Jesus. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Again, the Apostle Paul, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life, pause, just a show of hands by those that desire to live a godly life. I'm just curious, right? Pay attention, pay attention. All those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Will be will be persecuted. All those. Well, that's Paul writing to believers in the first century. Of course they were gonna. No. He doesn't say all those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus in the first century will be persecuted. He says all those who. The word of God to us this morning will be persecuted. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 12, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. When? God's word is quite clear. We will see the victory and triumph of God in this life, and we will see hardship in this life. One note, this doctrine that Christians will experience hardship smacks today's false prosperity gospel preachers right in the face. If I could put it more bluntly, 
The gospel of Jesus Christ kicks the teeth in on the prosperity gospel. And don't be deceived about how many pulpits are filled with garbage preaching preachers telling you that God only has health, wealth, and prosperity for you. That's a lie. They are lying. And they don't care about you. They are preaching a false gospel. They are making false converts. And they don't care and if you never come back to listen to my words or the words of anyone else ever again, that's okay. You will now recognize the error in the false gospel. God does not have for his people to simply be healthy, wealthy, and happy. They are lying. Life with Christ holds great promise. He's, he's promised to prosper his people. Not incorrect, but not complete. And when it stops there, we are lying. God's people will face hardship in this world. Listen to me and listen carefully. Pastors that you listen to are preaching that nonsense. And it's so intricately woven in with words that sound like words that I'm saying that you're not paying attention to it. You must run from it. Listen, the Bible apps on your phone are full of garbage reading plans that are helpful but are full of nothing but improve yourself. You can do it. God has for you to be happy. Listen, you will be persecuted. You will have trouble. You will come like Israel to a place of bitter water. And God will lead you to it. The Israelites have enjoyed the victory and triumph of God at the Red Sea. And they will again. As they journey to the promised land, they will see God triumph more than once in their life. But this victory, this place of triumph, it's over. And it's time for them to now move on in their life with God leading them. Note the promised land. That is a picture of what waits for God's people. God is leading Israel from Egypt through the wilderness to the promised land. God is leading his people now out of sin through the wilderness of this life, and into eternity with him. So when we see the people of Israel come into the promised land, we see a, a shadow of what is to come for us, forever at rest, forever in God's presence. The Bible tells us in eternity, sin and death are swallowed up in victory evermore, Romans teaches, 1 Corinthians teaches. This moment of God's work in their lives is complete. It's time to move. It says in chapter 15, verse 22, Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea. Listen, this place of victory isn't where we're staying. God did this, praise his name, let's go. They set out from the Red Sea. And look at this story. They went three days and found no water. Now listen, the human body has only ever been able to live for three days without water. And after three days, the likelihood of death has gone up forever. As they wander in the wilderness, away from the Red Sea, set out from the Red Sea, that place of victory, they are being led into the wilderness, and after three days finding no water, do you understand what's happening scientifically? Their bodies are in the early stages of, we're going to die. We need water. I wonder how many people are here this morning just parched for a drink of water. Leads them for three days into the wilderness. They come to Mara, and the only water that they find is bitter. So it's like, let's imagine, let's just imagine that there's no water anywhere in the world right now. 
and the only place that we can go and get a drink of water is the muddy pool of water running off the roof of the school right out in front of those doors right now. Just, it's the only water I can, no, we'd spit it right out, wouldn't we? We know that stuff is disgusting. Who knows what's walked through that water with what on their boots this morning? Oh my goodness, no. They come to the only water they can find after three days and the water is bitter and God has led them to this place of difficulty, bitter difficulty. God doesn't leave us where he saves us. He saved them, delivered them at the Red Sea, and he leads them on, and their first stop is a place where they don't get what they want. They get something that is utterly useless to them. Bitter water. And what do they do? They held a prayer meeting. They called on the name of the Lord. We trust you for all that you've done, O Lord our God. We remember the song we sang on the Red Sea. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods doing wondrous deeds? You, our God, can take care of this water. We will trust you. That's what they did, right? That's what the text says they did. No, they said, there's nothing to drink. What are we going to drink? They grumbled against Moses. What shall we drink? I hope that we've been paying attention as the narrative works its way on, that as soon as God does something for Israel, they turn right around and are like, what good was that? Save us from Egypt. Well, here you are. You're saved from Egypt. But here comes Pharaoh. Now what? Well, here's the Red Sea. Cross that. Well, we crossed it. Now what? Go in the wilderness. There's nothing to drink. Well, now what? Like next week or whenever we gather around Exodus chapter 16, we remember when we sat by the meat pots. Just always looking back. There's got to be something better in our past than wherever God is leading us to. They grumbled. They grumbled. Write this down. God leads us into difficult places that we may rely on him more. Not to whine and complain. And you don't have to put your hands up. I'm the first in line on whining and complaining. God leads us to difficult places to rely on him more, not to whine and complain. Grumble. Over the English versions of the Bible that may be in this room represented that word grumble in the English Standard Version, you may be looking at the word murmur. You may be looking at the word complain. You may be looking at the words cried out against. It all means one thing. Israel got to this bitter water that did them no good and they were not happy about it. Great, what are we going to drink? Here we are, Moses. Day three, uh, People are starting to get, you know, the death pains because their bodies need water. Now what? We came and drink the water. I love how it's interesting. Did you note in this short section of verses how simple it was for God to give them water? We're not going to dwell on that a whole lot because God's word doesn't even dwell on it a whole lot. Look what it says. They cried out, what shall we drink? And Moses cried to the Lord. The Lord showed him a log. He threw it in the water and the water became sweet. Like, history doesn't spend much time trying to figure out what type of log was that? How long was that log? Did he have to trim it? How did he throw it? How deep was the bitter water pool? It just says that they cry out, they're unhappy. Moses cries out, Lord, I've been following you since that mountain when you said you will be with me. And right now, I don't know how to give these people water. We're at this pool and it's all bitter. And what do I do? Hey, look at that log. Yeah? Throw it in the water. Okay. Drink away. Water's good now. Like, that's it. 
That's all that happens with the bitter water. They're 72 hours from the shore of the Red Sea. They went, look what it says. Moses said, let's leave the Red Sea, verse 22. Let's set out again. They went three days, three days, Sun up, sun down, 24 hours. Sun up, sun down, 24 hours. Sun up, sun down. 72 hours from standing on the shore of the Red Sea where their enemies are washing up dead to now, what are we going to drink? Great. Good work, Lord. Now what? Here we are. I guess we just die off in the wilderness now, God. They grumble. Can you relate? Yeah, I'm saved. I hear and see the promise of God, but this water is bitter. God has brought me only to this place of bitter water. It's interesting, I didn't do the tie-in in my notes, but I was thinking about where it says here, they called the place Mara, for Mara means bitter. You recognize, for Bible students in the room, this is talked about later in the Bible, isn't it? Her name is Ruth, Her mother-in-law's name is Naomi, and Naomi comes home after her husband and her sons are dead. She returns to her home. They're like, can this be Naomi? And Naomi says, don't call me that, for I am bitter. And what does she say? God has done this to me. God has made me bitter. Oh. Oh. They called the place Mara because it means bitter. God has led me to this place of bitterness. You know the Bible talks about bitterness so much. Hebrews says, make sure that no root of bitterness takes, see that no root of bitterness takes hold and springs up and causes division and dissension among you. Bitterness is talked about, it's it's a mark of the flesh. Bitterness in here, God has led his people to a place of bitterness where even at this pool of water, there's a choice in front of them, isn't there? We can just be bitter or we can trust and rely on God. I wonder, have you been led to a place of bitterness in your life today? If we read this too quickly, how often I have, how quickly do we read over, Moses cried out, God showed him a log, the log got thrown in the water, the water became sweet, the Lord tested them, set a statute, gave a rule, and on they went to 12 springs and some palm trees. Praise the Lord. Right? On into verse 16, let's get to the manna. That's the big story we all like to get to. Without paying attention to their The Lord made for them a statute and a rule. Fascinating. Long before we get to Sinai, long before the Ten Commandments, God gives them a rule. If we read it too quickly, we miss it. What has God done? Effectively, God has put an obstacle in front of them that they can't move that requires them to rely on God to move. Now we bring the bitter pool even closer to in front of us. How many of us this morning have an obstacle in front of us that we cannot move and we have a choice to either complain and gripe and grumble or to rely on God to take care of the obstacle in front of us? God put it right in front of them. Can he fix the obstacle? Of course he can. He brought them to the Red Sea. He parted the Red Sea. He dried the ground and let them across it. God can take care of a bitter pool of water. They needed to sing another chorus from that song in Exodus 15. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? God calls his people to a life that is so satisfied in him that there is no room to complain or grumble about anything. 
Do you understand? The line in our lives between grumbling or not is our satisfaction in our heavenly Father. God has called us to be so thoroughly satisfied in all that he is and all that he can do and all that he can provide that when we are in the desert and it's only a pool of bitter water, that's okay. God is God and who is like you? doing wonders, working miracles, awesome and glorious deeds. There's no one like you, O Lord. And in this place that you have led me to, I will not gripe and complain. I will trust you. God calls his people to a life that is so satisfied in him and so unsatisfied with the world that there is not room to complain or to grumble. Philippians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16 says this. This is abbreviated. Do all things without grumbling, that you may be innocent, without blemish, shining like light in a sinful world, holding fast to the word of life. Do all things. I remind my children of this. I remind myself of this. Do everything without grumbling. Don't grumble. Do everything without grumbling. Everything. Do everything without grumbling. I'll tell you right now, I wasn't shoveling snow yesterday morning without grumbling. But that's what God's saying to us. Do everything without grumbling. Do all things. Why? That you may be innocent. What's tied up in here? If you grumble, you're not innocent. You've got to pay attention to what's tied up in the words of Scripture. Do all things without grumbling, that you may be innocent. It goes on there. I abbreviated it to catch these points. You can see it for yourself in the text, but it goes on and says that you may be innocent children of God. Grumbling identifies you not as a child of God, but as something else. It marks you. Look at Do all things without grumbling, without blemish, that you may be innocent and that you may be without blemish. Grumbling is a stain on the life of a Christian. Grumbling is a, a black mark, a mar, a, a blemish on the life of a Christian. Are we going to grumble? Yeah, yeah. Don't worry, I'll grumble later today, I promise. Why? Because we're fallen. What do I need to do with the grumbling? I need to turn it back to the obedience of, Father, forgive me for being such a grumbling complainer about things that in a thousand years are going to not matter at all. Do all things without grumbling that you may be innocent, without blemish. It it goes on, it says, technically, verse 15 says, uh, 15 and 16 that you may shine as lights in the middle of a crooked and twisted generation among which you shine like stars, the New International Version says. Our lives should not have grumbling mixed in them. I'm not taking a poll of how many of you have spent so much time this past week grumbling about who knows what, because we've all done it, haven't we? Every single one of us in the room, from the youngest that's able to think and speak to the oldest in the room, every one of us has grumbled about something. And God's word comes to us as his people and says, don't grumble. We're going to watch Israel. Good grief. I taught the youth Sunday school this morning, and in Numbers, After they decide that they can't go into the promised land, as God has told them to do, they get kicked into the wilderness for 40 more years, and they're grumbling about their punishment. They just can't stop. Grumble, gripe, complain, and whine, and grumble, gripe, complain, and whine. And why do we want to live that way? You're choosing it. 
I choose it. Why do all things without grumbling that you may be innocent? Grumbling apparently affects our innocence. That you may be without blemish. Grumbling puts a stain on us. That you may shine like light in a sinful world. Apparently grumbling is that basket that nobody puts over the light to let shine. Grumbling marks us in a negative way. And it says at the end of Philippians 2, 14 and 16, holding fast to the word of life, grumbling says, I don't cling nearly to God's word the way that I should. And that's not a good thing to have stated about you. The more we cling to God's word, the less there is for us to grumble about. God calls us to such a satisfied life in him and such an unsatisfied life in the world that there is no need to grumble. I wrote this down. I have a friend who says, if you can't say amen, say ouch. A grumbling Christian is an ineffective Christian. Your griping and your complaining ruins your effective testimony for the Lord Jesus Christ. Holy smokes. Just think about, think about the worlds that revolves in. I have six children. One of them probably knows some things that we're saying, but he has no understanding or reasoning. Another one is getting older and the reasoning is growing, and the other's even still older and the reasoning is starting to grow. You know how many times I ruined the testimony of Jesus Christ this past week by grumbling in front of my kids? About what? About what? You name it, don't grumble about anything. How many of you grumbled about your spouse this past week in front of somebody else? How many of you, thank you for that hand, we didn't need it. (laughs) How many of you grumbled about your boss? How many of you grumbled about your finances? How many of you grumbled about your church? How many of you grumbled about the community you live in? How many of you grumbled about the weather? I did every one of them. Probably in a less period of time than a day. And ruined my effective testimony for the Lord Jesus Christ. Ruined. Not innocent, not without blemish, not shining like a light, and not holding fast to the word of life. Why? Because when we hold fast to the word of life, there's no thing to grumble about. And listen, some of you in this room are walking through storms in your life. Storms that are so much more severe than the petty things we grumble about. Like, I sure hope I remember to turn the crock pot on before I left the house this morning so my lunch is actually cooked when we get home. Think about the things you spend time grumbling on. What are you grumbling about? For Israel, they are grumbling about where the Lord led them to. Bitter water. And God here puts this in front of them. A statute. A rule. There he tested them. How did he test them? By putting an obstacle in front of them and seeing how they would live with it. What will my people do when I test them in this way? There the Lord made a statute and a rule. I want you to write this down. God helps us know how to rely on him practically. This is not unattainable wisdom from God's word for us this morning. It's practical. It's something that we can grab a hold of. There is tangible help from God's word when we are led to a place where it's grumble or trust God. And let's admit it. Our weakened flesh always wants to grumble instead of trusting God. Oh, Father, strengthen your people. 
Look at the practical help he gives them. Look at verse 26. Here's the rule, long before Sinai. If you will diligently listen to my voice, one. If you'll do what is right in my eyes, two. If you will give ear to my commandments and keep my statutes, three. Listen diligently, do what is right in God's eyes and obey his commands. It's that simple. It's that simple. This has always been the refrain of God to his people. Always. Always. It was right there with Adam and Eve in the garden. Don't eat from that tree. Eat from anything, but not that one. As Adam and Eve come out of the garden, (laughs) come out. That's not what God's word says. After Adam and Eve were kicked out of God's holiness, they have a son, Cain. They have another son, Abel. What happens? Cain kills Abel. Before he does, what does God say to him? If you do well, will you not be accepted? It's right there with him. Just do, just do good. Do the good. It's with the garden. It's with Adam and Eve in the garden. He says it to Cain. He says it to Joshua. God says it to Saul. He says it to Solomon. It's simply all over the word of God. Listen to me. Do what I say. I will take care of you. But one of the greatest temptations that we face is doing what is right in our own eyes. One of the the greatest things condemned in the history of God's people and in God's word is doing what is right in our own eyes. What decision is in front of you right now, Christian, where you can do what you think is right and that runs counter to everything God says to do? I'm praying for you if you're standing in a place of making a decision that is against your own wisdom and is relying on the wisdom of God because I know how difficult of a place it is to stand and say, I will not do what is right in my own eyes. I will obey God. That's a hard place to stand. It's it's an impossible place to stand on our own. We need the Spirit to help us. One of the greatest temptations we face. We don't listen for the voice of God. If you will diligently listen. Like, that means more than right here, right now, this morning, this week. Diligently. It, like, means that when you leave, you do it again, and again and again. I will listen. I will diligently listen. Wait a second. What did I just, I got to listen to God's voice on this. I've got to diligent in what God says. We don't listen to the voice of God. We disregard the word of God. We don't obey the command of God. Next thing you know, you look around and there's a pool of bitter water. What am I going to do about this bitter water? Can't do anything about this bitter water. Guess I'm just going to die here in the wilderness. I can't do it. You see what happened? Just like back when they were forgetting God on the other side of the Red Sea, instead of remembering all that God had done, they saw the enemy, they were afraid, they saw the sea, what are we going to do? They start to despair. The same thing on the other side of the Red Sea. So you see, The grass isn't greener on either side. It's always with our eyes looking up to the Lord, I will follow you. I wonder how many of us are grumbling about a pool of bitter water this morning. While not trusting God to sweeten the bitterness. It doesn't say he just gave them good water. It says he sweetened it. I looked it up. I wanted to know, what did this word mean for them? Does it mean like, did they get Coca-Cola Classic flown in that fountain or what? 
It says it made the water sweet. They drank it and were like, more. That's not just water. There's something delicious about what God has done to this water. I wonder how many of us are grumbling about a pool of bitter water. And it's such a small thing. He throws in a log and it changes. And God says, listen to me. Do what I say. Give ear to my commandments. And look at the end of verse 26. And I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord, your healer. You realize the, you realize the cursing of God that's implied in those words? Don't follow me. Don't obey me. Expect what they got. Follow me, obey me, and I will heal. This bitter pool of water that's in front of you, rely on me. Obey me. Follow me. And you don't have to worry about bitter pools. And then he leads them on, mind you, not just to a pool of water, the water of Mara that was bitter and they couldn't drink it. Verse 27, they came to Elam, where there were 12 springs of water. We don't know what this looks like geographically. Twelve springs of water. How much water were these springs producing? I don't know, but I just noted one spring for each tribe. So effectively provided for. Did you notice what's lacking? You know what's lacking here that as I read this text I expected but we don't find? Notice how God didn't judge them. There was no judgment from God in this text. Why? Because these people, newly redeemed out of slavery and life in Egypt, have no idea how to live. They don't know what to do. They come to this place and they do the only thing they know to do and God says, no, stop, stop. Listen to me, follow me, obey me, and I will provide. And he does. Apparently some listening happens. They move on. They come to a place where they are fully provided for and they encamp by palm trees and springs of water. As we see the Lord lead Israel to a place without water and test their faithfulness to him. It begs these questions. Is God testing your faithfulness to him through some difficult situation? I know he is for me. You face some difficult situation right now where God is testing your faith. The testing of your faith produces Endurance, it perfects us. The testing of your faith leads to good character before God. Is God testing your faithfulness to him through some difficult situation? Let me ask it this way. Are you on day three with no water and about to die? Are you looking for water and the only water you can find is bitter? The first question it begs, are you saved? Are you saved? I'm so thankful to look out and know and see so many who have professions of faith in Jesus Christ. Listen, the Israelites were saved and they still got bitter. They came to this place and they grumbled. And if you're not saved, call on the Lord Jesus Christ. Be saved. Find salvation through dry ground, through the Red Sea. Are you on day three and needing a water? Are you grumbling or diligently listening to the voice of God? Are you doing what is right in his eyes or your own? Are you paying attention to his commands? Or are you listening to the wisdom of the world? God might lead you to a bitter place. He's led me to bitter places. I'm sure I will be in bitter places again. When he does, 
It's to help us learn to rely on him more, to trust him even more. He's perfecting his people. When you are led to a place of bitterness, trust God more. We have the Lord's Supper before us as we talk about a place of bitterness. The Bible says that Christ despised the shame of the cross. He knew what it was, knew what it meant, knew what he was doing. And he did it for us so that we, as the Israelites, could look and remember a place of momentary victory in this life that looks forward to a place of permanent victory in eternity. That's what this represents. If you're here through faith in Jesus Christ, the Lord's Supper is open to you. I'm going to pray, and we'll receive the elements. We'll take communion all together as a church, an act of worship, and we'll sing today. Father, we come before you, thankful that you have provided a way for us, thankful God, that not only have you delivered us through the Red Sea and shown us our vanquished enemy, Father, you lead us to bitter places where we are forced to rely on you or follow our own wisdom. Oh God, strengthen us that we would rely on you and not ourselves. Strengthen us, Father, to lean not on our own understanding. Father, as we see you provide for the Israelites at the bitter waters of Marah, as you sweeten the waters and then you lead them on to more water, Father, help us to see that there are momentary places of victory in this life as we work our way toward the ultimate victory of eternity with you. Father, strengthen us during hardship. Strengthen us to see and understand that the trial and persecution that we endure is testing our faith and perfecting us. Oh God, help us to not be a people that grumble. Father, forgive me for being a grumbling Christian, ineffective. Strengthen me. Strengthen our church, Father. Father, we thank you for the broken body and shed blood of Jesus Christ. And as we come to this moment to observe what he did for us, we say thank you and we pray, Father, be glorified in this, our worship to you this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us this week. If you have any questions about anything you just heard or if we can pray for you, please contact us at info at Until next time, stay in God's word.